0: Uh, I think I would have to say be patient and persevere. Um, The the, the climb to the top is filled with much more failure from a personal perspective than it is with success. But I always have said, while success is the greatest reward for the work we do, failure is probably the greatest motivator. That's the thing that brings us back every day and says, you know what? I'm going to get better today than I was yesterday. I'm going to do this better than I could Uh, I'm not gonna fail the next time I do this. And so that's the biggest thing, be patient and persevere.
1: one more jump podcast. This is episode five. We have an extremely, extremely special not to, you know, dismiss our other guests, but this uh, guest uh, hold uh, a special spot um, in, in my life. And um, he's a 10 or a nine time American record setter. Um, he was the first American to jump over six meters, which is pretty awesome. A two time Olympian, correct? Okay, two-time Olympian. Um, He also is a sports agent. He represents uh, some of the best talent in the world, um, including uh, American record holder Sam Kendricks and Sandy Morris. Um, He is from St. Charles, Missouri. Uh, he took a little stint and went to Arkansas state for about 20 years. And then now he's back in, uh, St. Louis area. He's a family man. Uh, he is, there were two, two posters that were on my wall whenever I was a kid. Mm. First one was Bob Marley. And the second one was our guest Jeff Hartwig? Give it yeah. up for Jeff Hartwig. That's you, what you. I'm talking
0: about. How we doing, Jeff? We're doing great. Thank you very much for having me on the on the podcast.
1: Yeah, yeah, we're excited. Um, I think I think ch- to get things started, y- I just mentioned that you are nine time American record setter, the first person over six meters, which is nineteen for the people who don't know the metric is nineteen eight and a half.
0: something like like that yeah yeah, 1984 or something like that
1: yeah and uh he actually hold on one sec Uh uh-oh i got these bad boys oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) i got a pair of old zoom air high jump or not high jump uh pole vault slash triple jump because they used to be pole vault slash triple jump spikes and uh this one says Jeff Hartwig pole vault in 19, eight and a half. So this was to have been after you jumped the big six meter mark. So anyway, you, the most interesting part of your story to me is you did not start anywhere close to that. You were not this huge phenom coming out of high school. You weren't that huge of a phenom coming out of college um but still you worked your way up to this incredible level um how tell us about that story like how where where did it start and where how did you go from being a nine six freshman to the american record holder and first person first american over six meters
0: yeah i I, sometimes i have to think about how much the sport has evolved, how much it's changed from what it was when I was first starting. And I actually got started pole vaulting by accident. There, there was no sports in eighth grade. When I was in eighth grade, uh, I had grown up playing baseball, but I had grown tired of baseball. It was a little too slow for me. And I really was, I was a little bitty guy. So I was looking for something that I could do as an individual that I wouldn't be relying on a team because I, I always felt like, you know, being a part of a football team or a baseball team, you're you're relying on a lot of other people to be successful. And individual sports like track and field give us a chance to really put ourselves out there. Of course there's a lot more risk, but it also gives us a chance to 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 showcase our talents or to showcase the hard work that we put in. And I've always been a I guess a relatively determined person and 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 willing to do the work to improve. And so, uh, what I did was um, I I shifted my focus to track. I went to the track coach as an eighth grader and I said, what can I do to be involved with track? And he said, well, we we need managers. And I said, I I don't really want to be a manager. I would like to actually be on the team. And he said, well, I'm sorry, but at this stage of the game, eighth graders, the only thing I can do is let you be a manager. And I said, okay, well, Uh, What what do you need help with? And he said, Well, how do you know? Are you okay staying late after school? And I said, Actually, I live in the neighborhood behind my junior high, so I walk to school. So I said, I can I can stay as late as you need because I just walk home. And he said, Oh, well, if you walk to school, can you also come early in the mornings? I could really (laughs) help with our pole vaulters, and our pole vaulters practice in the morning before school, so that I can watch them and give my full attention. Uh, the junior high that I went to the ninth grade was at the junior high so because of that it was our coaching staff was pretty much a one-man show and so he says I have my pole vaulters come in in the morning they jump before school and then afterwards after school I need somebody to help put them through workouts doing pull-ups or weight workouts or running workouts or whatever and I said sure I can do it but I don't know anything about pole vault. And he said, don't worry, we'll teach you. And so I came, I remember coming in probably the next day. And the first time they had a a makeshift rigged up pole vault set up in the gym uh, that allowed the guys to jump a little bit, do pop ups and stuff. But I remember a guy jumping close to as high as a basketball goal. And I said, Whoa, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And literally from the first moment I saw it, I was hooked. And uh, I, you know, I often say, I tried every sport there is. Um, I had great parents that were very encouraging and, and really gave me a lot of exposure. And, and I listened to, uh, I listened to Greg and, and Helena Duplantis talk about Mondo's upbringing and Greg and Helena had very much that same philosophy. We want to give our kids exposure to everything and let them just kind of settle in where they do. And uh, I had a big exposure and I always say, I don't think we choose our sports. I think our sports sort of choose us. Uh, I tried wrestling, I tried cross country, I tried football, I tried baseball. I played a little bit of basketball, a little pickup soccer, Um, and I love sports. But for some reason, there was just something about the pole vault that I just, I said, this is what I want to do more than anything else. And uh, I started right. as a ninth grader. And in contrast to what we're experiencing these days with clubs and, and people that have pits in their backyard and, and all year round training programs, one of the things people don't realize and I explain is that by the time I was a senior in high school, I jumped 14-6. You're right, not earth shattering nothing that anybody would go crazy about, but at that point, I literally had about ten months total experience pole vaulting um, I started as a as an eighth grader to learn about the sport, but I didn't actually jump until I was a freshman, track seasons about two and a half months long, if that in high school, I always had limited poles, small pits, limited runways, and more than anything I had I had great passionate coaches that were willing to put extra time into me, but they never, but not a big knowledge base. So I jumped two and a half months a year for four years. And if you took a kid today and in 10 months got them up to a 14 and a half feet, you'd be thinking, hey, this guy's pretty good. Uh right. it's just in those days, it wasn't earth shattering. And growing up here in Missouri, um, we had Coach Rick Addig on the other side of the state in Kansas City. And he was a high school coach at the time. And I remember my dad taking me to the state meet as a tenth grader and watching Coach Addicts Walters sweep the state meet. First four places, all over 15-6. And I said, Oh my gosh, these guys were, they were just on a whole nother planet. But that was always very motivating for me. And uh, and so I was willing to Stay the course and just keep working, and and I made good decisions. Ended up at Arkansas State, and that ended up being really the the foundation that that led me to my success over the over time.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a really good segue into something that I think the a lot of young vaulters need to. We always you know whenever we ran our camps at North Central and, and now you know I have my club, we, we always try to instill like you need to be a student of the sport. And I think one very kind of not kind of historical pole vaulting group in the, in the history of the world of world you know pole vaulting is Bell Athletics. And I, And would you, from an outsider's perspective, if I were to look at your career, I would say that that was probably the kind of spark that turned you, you know, into a completely different pole vaulter. Is that an accurate statement?
0: Oh yeah, for sure. You know, if you read, uh, like some of Malcolm Gladwell's books, they talk of, he talks about the timing of events in your life and how those circumstances lead to un- unknown success or or put you in a position to be successful. And, um, you know, for anybody that hasn't read them, I really would recommend it. It, It's really phenomenal. But, you know, my birthday's in September, so I was the youngest kid in my class. Because I was the youngest kid in my class, I was was still 17 when I started college. I believe that had a limiting factor to how I progressed because my birthday's in September. I believe that had a limiting factor in how successful I was in high school. Because I was jumping against kids that were essentially a year older than me, um, but we were in the same grade. And so what happened was I because I matured very late and I matured very late physically as well, um, I just didn't get a chance. I, I didn't have that 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 rise through high school that might have led to a scholarship that might have taken me somewhere. Uh, And then I ended up at Arkansas State and I latched on to Earl right away because I just recognized uh, his greatness as an athlete. And he was still competing Um, when I went to Arkansas State. And for
1: the people who don't know, can you just give like people who are listening to this that are not pole vaulters, who is Earl Bell and like what, like, why is he so great? So,
0: so Earl, Earl Bell was a, was actually opposite of me. He was a phenom pole vaulter, jumped 15 and a half feet in high school in growing up in, Ar- in Jonesboro, Arkansas, which is in the northeast corner, about an hour from Memphis, Tennessee. Um, Earl was a three-time Olympian. Uh, he got the bronze medal in 84. Um, but the biggest thing was his career spanned over such a long period. He made his first Olympic team as a junior in college in 1976. We boycotted it in 1980. He went on to make Olympic teams in 84, where he got the bronze, 88, where he was actually fourth place, one place out of it between, behind three Russians, and then still won the national championships in 1990. So his career wow. was phenomenal. And that was, once again, back to those, that Malcolm Gladwell book, I just happened to be at the right, time, right place at the right time. And as I, was, I graduated from college in '90. And when I graduated, Earl was at the twilight of his career, the, the, the tail end of his career, looking for something to do. And I remember in the, in the summer of 91, Earl came to me and said, I think I'm going to build a pole vault training center. And I said, really? This could be awesome. I'm going to love this. this is, <laughs> yeah. you know. And he says, I really think we can help somebody. And I remember telling, I remember one day I was walking through in the 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 building was just the frame. It was just the steel girders, the frame. And I remember we were walking through it and it looked like this giant rib cage sticking up out of the, out of this soybean field in in Arkansas. And, uh, you know, Earl said, you know, somebody's going to jump really high in this place one day. And I said, yeah, it's going to be me.
2: (laughs) And, uh,
0: and I was really the benefactor of, of Earl's commitment to, do something that no one had ever done. And I remember people telling Earl, oh, you're crazy. You're investing your life savings in a pole vault training center. That'll never work. No one's ever going to go to a pole vault training center. And how many of them do we have now? Every oh. state. I mean, there's, hundred, there's yeah. several hundred pole vault training centers around our country. And for the most part in each of its own respect, they're all being successful. And yeah. I think that's a testament to the athletes and the, the, the commitment that these athletes have um, just to pursue excellence, to get better, to take advantage of opportunities. And yeah. through the years, we, we assembled a group of athletes in bell athletics that I don't, I don't, it has not been rivaled anywhere in the world. Um, for many, many years, Earl would consistently put four out of our six pole vaulters on national teams, world championships, Olympics, Uh, you know, whether it was, you know, me and Derek, uh, Jillian Schwartz and Kelly Suttle making Olympic teams, going, traveling the world, it was really a group. And we just had a mix that it's, it's, you can't define what it takes to, to assemble that type of group of people. But the best way I can describe it is we, we were all there for a common cause. Ultimately we're competing against the height of the crossbar more than each other. and. And we all recognized the ups and the downs and everybody sort of contributed positively to, to make everybody else better. And whether that was just by example of, of excellence, or we each had specialized skills. We each, I was not the strongest. I, I was probably the, maybe one of the strongest, but I wasn't the fastest. I wasn't the, the guy with the most power. I wasn't the best in the gymnastics but I could latch on to what all those other guys doing. So I'd watch Chad Harding do gymnastic workouts. And I'm like, man, that guy's he's, he's on another level. Uh, but he couldn't run quite as well as I could. Um, I would watch Derek miles do things, uh, power things, uh, you know, explosive lifts and explosive things, bounding and that kind of stuff. And I couldn't hold a candle to him in those areas I tried to work on my other weaknesses and other areas where I could get better. And uh, we really just built a strong group. And, and uh, I think a lot of people and a lot of training centers are sort of indebted to Earl because of his inspiration and yeah. the, kind of the philosophies and the program that he set up.
1: He's an inspiration. I mean, like for me in, in particular, like this is you know Earl's dream back then is is now my dream you know like and and that is i don't know if anybody will ever really you know hold a candle to what he did down there i mean it, the sheer you're you're mentioning mentioning a few people like 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 there's way more people than who jeff is mentioning right now you know these are these are these you know big high level you know olympic you know world championship competitors but there are so many other elites that have been down there and that have have jumped so high in that facility and it's it's incredible so what why why what why was he so good cuz he he also works with little kids too so so he's working with mm-hmm. he's working with little kids he's working with you know high school collegiate but then also post collegiate elite you know, pole vaulters, is there, is it, what, what's he so good at? You know, like, I mean, he's probably good at a million things, but, but is there a couple things that you could really point to that it's like, hey, this is what Errol is really good at?
0: Well, I think the big thing is he is, he's sort of a really one track person. You know, he actually lives in the training center. Um, and he just, like a lot of people, he has this passion for pole vaulting just to try to figure it out. And it's a never-ending puzzle to solve. And, and first, as athletes, we're all trying to solve our own personal puzzle. We're all trying to figure out what, makes, what how we're going to get the most out of ourselves. And that's really the true measure of success, right? I think extrinsically, we measure everything based on medals, you know? So we've had a great run here recently. Sam Kendricks has been killing it, just winning, winning all kinds of medals, winning all kinds of meets. So we say, well, the American pole vault is very successful right now. Sandy Morris, the same. Winning medals, uh, jumping at the highest level. But really and truly, those those two athletes in particular are beyond what most normal athletes are capable of. And I can assure you both of them have worked extremely, extremely hard. But the real measure of success for any athlete is achieving your own personal best, your own personal level of your highest level of achievement. And that's what Earl is so good at is Earl finds the way to get the most out of each athlete that goes down there. But he's not the kind of guy that's a hand holder. You know, Uh, I think a lot of times people would come to Bell athletics and they expect every day Earl walks out with a clipboard and a stopwatch and a whistle. (laughs) He's out there saying, you got to do this, 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 and this that's not the way the program works. And the reason why it was so successful is because Earl recognizes that an athlete who wants to be successful, you can't put yourself in the hands of somebody who wants it more than you do. Uh, you have to want it more than anybody else. And that means you're willing to take ownership of what you're doing, how you're doing it, and, and you know the, the athletes that just show up and train mindlessly There are lots of really talented people in this world, and they can be successful regardless of who coaches them or even what they do in training. But to truly be great, I believe you have to take ownership of your own personal uh, destiny. And that's what Earl really instilled in all of us. So, uh, very rarely, Earl never went to the track with me when I did track workouts, but he always knew what I was doing and he always gave me feedback that led me to be the most productive I could be while putting together my track workouts. Um, he'd sit in his office while I was in the weight room. So he'd hear the weights clanking around, but he wasn't out there pushing me or telling me to lift more, telling me to lift less. Um, but he was always sort of in the shadows, overseeing what I was doing and he would give me feedback on stuff. And And if I, it looked like I was training too hard, he would give me input. If it looked like I was, getting a little heavy, he would give me input, you know, and, and there were different ways that he inspired all of us to, to really take ownership of our own personal destiny. And that's what I think made us all successful. Because when you're, you you have to, you have to invest in yourself outside of what you do while you're at practice. Uh, There is no such thing as show up, do a workout, go home, and then forget about it until the next day. So the pole vault became sort of all-encompassing for us, and there were many athletes that came to Jonesboro and actually were just as successful as I was or Derek or any of the girls that were there uh, that you probably never heard of. Um, but Earl got the most out of them, and, and, and Earl, would, Earl would just kind of work his magic and, and people would jump better, uh, even if it wasn't at the highest level where they are making national teams or, or going to the Olympics.
1: All right, I got a yes or no question. Is Earl Bell the greatest overall pole vaulting coach
0: of all time? Yes. In my opinion, no, no question about it. Uh, right. I, I don't think there's a single athlete that he can't help. And so many times we try to develop models. We try to develop uh, a technical model. But not every athlete conforms to that technical model. Uh, You look at at the, the national championships in track, or you go to the Olympic trials now next year, and you look at the guys lining up for the 100 meters, they all pretty much look the same. You look at the final of the shot put, they all pretty much look the same. You look at the finals for the pole vault, both men and women, there's tall, there's short, there's muscular, there's lean. You can't describe what makes the best pole vaulter. And I remember one time a a parent came into Earl and he says, you know, what do you look for? What do you, how do you, how do you you sort of pick out who's going to be a great pole vaulter? Uh, You know, and, or what, what's the best way to ensure success in the pole vault? And, And Earl, Earl's answer was pretty funny. He says, the athletes need to choose their parents wisely. (laughs) <laughs> and there was something to the wisdom of, you know, Yeah, there are certain athletes where genetics does play a, a big part in going up to that highest level. Um, but honestly, it, it's just work ethic. It's, it's who's willing to put the most into finding their personal level of success. Those are going to be the ones that are the most successful. And, uh, and so it's, it's a great journey for sure.
3: Yeah. That's, I got a, go I got a question. So you, Jeff, you talk about, you were at Earl's place and you took, you know, ownership and, and Earl trusted you in that. And you, you are a extremely high, high level elite vaulter. What do you, what do you say to these, these vaulters who just got out of college and have these, you know, 540, 550, 560 bars and want to chase this post-collegiate career that, um, you know, maybe they don't have Earl's place. Maybe they got to pop down there a couple times for a meet and got to, you know, feel that contagious environment, but then they're back living with mom and dad or back at their apartment and then they've got a local high school track to use. What what do you tell them to keep them pushing to the next level?
0: Probably the two best things I would say is, number one, be patient. And number two, you have to be specific in what you do. You have to have a plan. And I think there's lots of athletes that are willing to go out and train hard. You know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of social media, but I look at social media all the time. It's sort of a necessity in the world we live in. And I see like on Jumpers World or different websites or on different Instagram pages, some phenomenal athletes that can do things that I never dreamed of being able to do athletically, but they do so without purpose. And so every year I would sit down with Earl and we would go through, okay, what did we do well this year? What are, what are you good at and what are you not good at? And I was the type of person that I loved finding things I was bad at. Um, Because to me that represented opportunity. That was a chance to go out and if I knew if I improved something I was bad at, I was probably going to get better. So A guy that can bench press 350 pounds, bench pressing 375 is probably not going to help you run pole vault higher if you run a 14 second hundred meters, you know, you got to find out where your weakness is and what what's the limiting factor. And I've actually heard coaches talk about this philosophy of we have to accentuate your strengths. We got to we got to exploit your strengths and use them. In the pole vault, it doesn't always work. It's more like you have to address the things you're the worst at and maintain your strengths because the limiting factor is always going to be tied to where that weak link is in the chain. So literally, Earl Earl would draw on a piece of paper the links of a chain, and then we had different barometers that that represented areas that we could do. So we would look at things like lifestyle, body maintenance, health, uh, strength, technique, speed. Um, What can you do to get better? And where are you, where is the weak link in the chain, so to speak, so to speak. And that's what we would do to try to get better. We would really be focused on that. And then patience. Um, as, As we said, or as I said earlier, I graduated in 1990 my first trip to Europe was in 1995, five years out of college. Um, actually, on well, my ver- first trip, I went to a, a couple of small meets in Switzerland, and I went with Earl and Greg Duplantis, uh, which was a great trip. That was, you know, two guys that were big inspirations to me, and then I got to go to Europe with them, and we got to all jump together and, at, at this little club in, in Switzerland. Uh, but five years out of college, I was already 27 years old, and most people think, oh, man, if I'm, not out of, if I'm not going to Europe right out of college, I don't have a chance. I don't, I don't really have a, an opportunity to be successful, and that's just not true at all, but you got to be specific, and you got to have a plan. So each, each day when I went out to practice, I would walk into Earl's training center, and Earl would say, what are we working on today? And he said it every single day. And yeah. guess what? The answer was never, I'm going to try to jump as high as I can today. I'm trying to <laughs> jump over the bar. <laughs> we never did that. Right. We were always, he wanted a specific answer. You know, yeah. I want to see a high right shoulder. I want to see your, 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 your takeoff knee up a little higher. I want to see a little more dorsiflexion as you leave the ground. I want to see you swing your trail leg a little straighter. We yeah. were always very specific in what we were trying to achieve, knowing that if we could accomplish those things, height would take care of itself. So yeah.
3: the specifics, like <laughs> I, I was somebody who, who, you know, dipped out after I jumped five thirty. I had kind of finished up the event for myself and was like, all right, I'm going to go do my thing, do my job. Um, you know, have a, have a wife and, and eventually a family, but there's these, these vaulters who are still kind of picking at it and they're picking at it with these, these, big goals, these big workouts, these I want to lift more. I want to sprint, uh, sprint faster. I want to jump higher, but they aren't nailing down to those really meticulous specific things. And you mentioned something, um, you know, like knee drive and dorsiflexion and these, these things that are so, uh, like very micro in terms of, of what I believe takes a vaulter to that next, threshold, that breakthrough into the elite elites, you know, the, the 570 plus guys, I guess, are there some things that, that you would say differentiate those guys who are the 550, 560 guys from the 570 plus guys?
0: Yeah, for sure. The biggest thing that I think, so I, I have kind of the best of all worlds in the, in the track and field and the pole vault world. Uh, I coach high school. So I get kids every year that have never touched a pole and I get to start them from scratch, brand new pole vaulters. Uh, I work with Gill athletics, uh, where I get to travel around. I get to see a lot of college track meets. Um, and, and because I'm a representative for, for Pacer, the Pacer brand pole vaulting poles, I get to see, I get to talk to coaches all the time about pole vaulting and that's maybe that collegiate level. And then as an agent, working with Sam, Sandy, Alicia Newman, and a, and a whole host of other uh, you know, great pole vaulters, I get to travel around the world, and I get to see the best track meets. And I'm sitting front row right at the track watching these guys jump, and, and that's everything from the Diamond League meets to the, to the World Championships to the Olympics. And I consider myself very uh, lucky to have that opportunity But what I explain to a lot of young vaulters when they start is when you first pick up a pole, you are a much better athlete than you are a pole vaulter. But eventually over time, the tables will turn and you will become a better pole vaulter that needs to improve your athletic ability. And so that, that causes a a kind of a paradigm, a, a big shift in, in how you train. So, with young vaulters, obviously more time, more time on the pole with, with older vaulters and those things that I worked on specifically as I got older. Uh, I remember I went, I kind of had a weird experience and I look at different experiences. Um, I had a, a, an injury in 1996. Uh, I broke a pole and it broke a bone in my hand and for eight weeks I trained as a sprinter because I couldn't pole vault. And when I came back off of that injury, my technique got better in the pole vault and I hadn't pulled, I hadn't touched a pole and Earl and I looked at each other and said, what is going on here? And he says, you're better on the runway. You're more powerful on the runway. I'm seeing you do things on the runway that I've never seen before, but it's making you jump better. You're getting off the ground a little cleaner. You got a little more pop off the takeoff step. And I went, it was kind of an eye-opening experience. And funny enough, in those years leading up, those two years leading up to my first six meter jump, I actually stopped jumping in practice. And I only trained like a sprint. I would only jump in practice in the off season. But once the season started, I quit jumping in practice. And it sucked. It was terrible. And Earl hated it too. Earl said, this is no fun. I want to watch you pole vault. And I said, yeah, I know this is no fun. I want to pole vault. But I knew that the key to my success, because of some input I got from Dr. Peter McGinnis, when I jumped my first 19 foot jump at the Olympic trials in 96 to make the team, I sat down with Peter McGinnis, who's the biomechanist for USA Track and Field. and, And Peter McGinnis told me, he says, I got good news and I got bad news. He said, the good news is running as slow as you're running, you're one of the most efficient pole vaulters (laughs) I've ever seen. He said, I've never, he goes, at this point, I've never seen somebody successfully go over a 19-foot bar running as slow as you're running. And I said, but Pete, I'm faster than I've ever been. He said, yeah, that's the bad news. He says, "I I think you can work on technique from now until the cows come home And I don't think you're going to, he says, I, I would question how much technical improvement is going to make you jump higher. He goes, but I think if you can get faster, if you can get more powerful and your technique holds up right now, while you may not love your technique, it's actually very efficient. And I kind of took that to heart and I said, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to figure out how to train a different way. That's probably different and, and it wasn't as much fun, but it was, I was doing the things that I needed to do. And sure enough, two years later, I went from running 9.23 meters per second to about 9.7 meters per second. Um, and that was because I actually quit jumping and training, but that was very late in my mature, maturing right. process. I was close to 30 years old at that point. I had already been pole vaulting for
1: 15 years. Yeah, there's two two points. Uh, that's funny because I met with Peter McGinnis at Reno. Uh, I don't know what year it was, but, uh, and, he, you know, he sat me down and showed me the chart of, you know, where everybody's at and their meters per second. And, and he was like, uh, you're pretty efficient. Like your technique's pretty efficient. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. He's like, cause you're pretty slow. <laughs> I was like, I was like <clears throat> I don't know what to say. Do I say thank you? Like it was, it was very strange, but uh, it was cool. That was actually really cool input that he was able to give me. And, and then the second point is um, you had mentioned, obviously this was later in your career. You had learned how to pole vault. You could have taken two months off and gotten back on and been fine because you had been pole vaulting for so long. But I think it is a kind of like a, A relative point right now because the some of the best jumpers in the world speaking of like Sam and Renault and Mondo um, are kind of known for being like they can take a million jumps in practice and Mm -hmm. and they could jump you know every day for you know jump a million times Um, and so I think that there's a lot of people that are kind of young kids that are like well if they're doing that then that's what i have to do and so what you're and i think it's cool to contrast that with you where you're like hey you know i later on in my career i jumped only in track meets and uh i i think that is something that's good for kids to understand and to know and i think josh you and i dad had us kind of like a blend of two of both of those worlds you know we'd take sure we wouldn't take a million jumps in practice, you know. We no, would take six, maybe like or, 10 six or six or eight or ten. And I
3: think I was going to say with with um, Jeff's story, and it's a it's a much it's about two and a half feet lower. Um, but <laughs> but um, you know, I jumped sixteen nine as a junior in high school, and then you know, blew my shoulder out my senior year first meet, and had to take two years off. But I mentioned this on the first episode of this. I came back my first meet and pr'd. I jumped 520 because I took two years and trained as a sprinter because I couldn't use my upper body. I actually didn't even lift much upper body at all. Couldn't do anything overhead, but I was out there with a automatic timing system, working on sprint intervals, working on pole runs, and I knew that I knew how to pole vault um, good enough to to you know hopefully jump 17 plus but I had quickness on the runway now and I was able to grip so much higher on a big enough pole that it just, it flung me over the bar. Um, but to Jake's point, we, I only vaulted in meets in, in college for most of it. I had maybe a couple jumps during the week, partially because of my, my shoulder injury. Um, but that takes a lot of trust to, um, in your training and in your coach to be able to um, fully commit to feeling like you're prepared at the end of the runway on a Saturday with a, with a crossbar up there.
1: You know For what I mean? Sure. For sure, man. Yeah. You know, um, Earl yeah, has ahead. a
0: saying, he always says, uh, confidence comes from your legs,
1: right? Yeah. That's uh, a good, good statement. You
0: can, you can post whatever you want. You can talk a lot, run your mouth. When you step on the runway, you know whether you believe you got a chance to make that bar mm. and, and it's true confidence does come from your legs, but, but the thing is, is so, so we don't live in a world of exceptions where exceptions become norms. We do live in a world where we witness exceptional things. Um, I, I remember my first year representing Sam Kendricks. We went to the pole vault summit in Reno and he jumped 586, which is about 19.2 and three quarters. And he did it on a 15.9 pole gripping about 15.4. Yeah, you guys shake your heads. I did too. I'm like, I don't understand this. This right. makes no sense to me because I jumped on 15.9 poles in high school. And I jumped about two inches under my grip when I jumped 14.6. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> and and here, here Sam is jumping 53, 54 inches. Uh, you know, last year in Des Moines when Sam jumped uh, 60, 606 to break the American record, that, that's 1911. And he did it on a 16-foot pole. And, and Sam is an exceptional example. But if you can't do what Sam does, right. you can't live in this world of, well, I'm going to go out and keep pole vaulting because I want to do it. Because there's a lot of other attributes that Sam has that, that factor into what he can do. The same with Renault, the same with, with Mondo. And if, every year we go to Renault, Renault has this meet called All-Star-Povol in his hometown in France. And it's taken over the meat that, that Sergei Bubka used to, to have in his hometown in Donetsk in the Ukraine. And, and the biomechanists from France give us uh, some really great data, some really great feedback from those meats. Um, and a couple of years ago, Mondo set the world junior record, and he was the second fastest guy in the meat. He was faster than – now, he was – yes, he was 18 years old. He was a high school senior. Right. But right. the only person faster in the whole meet was Raphael Holzdepa. And we know that the event is pure – in simple physics is all about speed. So, for me, the reason why I quit jumping in practice as much and started training differently is because my weak link was my speed. Same for you, Jake. You know, you were yeah. told, hey, your weak link's your speed. I've watched you jump. I love your technique. I think it's probably, it's probably better than mine. And at some level, when you find that weak link and then you address it, that's when you're going to get the biggest bang for your training buck, as they say. Um, right. Sam's pretty darn fast. Uh, he wasn't always fast, but Sam's father, who, who is his coach, is, is acutely aware of the fact that we look at the numbers of what the other guys are running, we look at the numbers of what Sam's running, and we know that you know, Sam has made improvements. And last year, Sam was actually the fastest he's ever been and magically he jumped the highest he's ever jumped. And so the, the, the formula, it's like I always say the, the pole vault is like a great recipe in cooking. You gotta have a whole bunch of ingredients that go in and when all those ingredients are put in the right proportions and the right mix, it makes for a totally delicious meal, but you put a little too much of one thing and not enough of another. And it doesn't quite taste the same and it doesn't work out so well. So that's what we really all have to aspire to. And, and that's where I think the coaches, like I said, Earl Bell, bring out just the greatest in everybody, because Earl can't tell you what his model for pole vaulting is because it, I, always, I I tell people all the time. I think the most common answer that I would give to any common question about the pole vault is it depends. Uh, right. Yeah. You know,
1: for sure. For it sure. It depends I, on
0: what the athlete is, and, and and you have a a Becky Holiday who's who's five three, and a Jeremy Scott who's six nine. Uh, right. You can't expect that those two athletes are going to train the same or have the same technical model uh, and, and, and be expected to achieve the same level of success. Yeah.
1: Um, Did Jeff Hartwig just say that uh, my technique was better than his? (laughs) I was going to say, we're going to need to put that as the intro for for this. I think we just cut it. Cut it right here, man. (laughs) No, I'm just joking. I I was like, oh my gosh, man. I was was like, whoa, all right. I died and went to heaven, boys. All right. Um, So anyway, but I was way slower than him.
3: (laughs) Well, I wanted to pick at something because Jeff Coover was just on here and he said – there's this conversation in this elite, this upper elite level um, vault vaulting around speed. And he said the same thing. He was like, you know, same thing Jake said, same thing you said. I was able to vault really, you know, 18.7, but my speed was my weakest link. It was, I was, I, his efficiency was being able to vault 18.7 with, you know, I don't, I don't want to misquote him, but as, as slow or not as fast as the others were on the runway um and i guess jeff would you say that some of these vaulters who are these you know i guess we we try to not tailor our content but a lot of our listeners we're finding are these post-collegiate guys who are trying to get these nuggets to try to get to that next level would you say they should be they should be out on the track more sprinting lifting more lower body you said your legs are where the confidence is coming from
0: yeah, I, I think that there's different ways to develop speed. You know, I I know that that we have, um, but once again, it, it connects to that weak link. So anybody who goes to the U.S. Championships would have access to Pete McGinnis's information, um, and and his data is invaluable. And if you look at my progression through the years, you would find that in college, when I'm running 8.9 meters per second on the runway, I jumped about 540. And four or five years out of college, I'm running 9.2 up to 9.3 meters per second when I jumped my first 19-foot bar. And then when I jumped six meters, I was running 9.84 meters per second. And the fastest pole vaulters of all time, the Peter Videns of Sweden, Greg Duplanis, Dean Starkey, Scott Huffman, Sergey Bubka, uh, and now Mondo and Renault, those guys are pushing that 10 meter per second barrier. Uh, but then we see a guy like Russ Buller. Russ Buller was a guy that could run close to 10 meters per second, um, and he did jump 19 feet, but But there was maybe something else missing because he had he had the speed to jump much higher. So um, Sam and I talk all the time, and we say, "How good is how how is your technique? Is your technique good enough? How strong is strong enough? How fast is fast enough?" So when you see Sam's training regime, you'll see Sam doesn't spend a ton of time in the weight room, but he spends enough time to be strong enough to accomplish what he's trying to accomplish. Right and you know, Mondo, they've talked about that with Mondo. Mondo's just had this sort of unnatural ability to pole vault for a very, very long time. Um, and people used to always, I think, question them, you know, what kind of training programs he on? What kind of weightlifting does he do? And they're like, he doesn't. He just goes out and does it. And, and he, he did start weight training now. And his PR went from 18 feet as a 16-year-old to 19.5 as a 17-year-old because he started doing a little bit of weightlifting. He started training a little bit. And those are things that are hard for us to conceptualize. But you have to look at what, what you're doing and what's good enough. And if you're running 8.9, 9.9 you know, 9 meters per second, um, you can look and find an example of some guy like, like Jeremy Scott, who jumped really, really high running that speed, but he was almost 6'10", and he could still grip almost 17 feet because of his angle at the takeoff allowed him to take off inside a 13, and so he didn't have to have as much kinetic energy from the speed into the jump. Um, Meanwhile, someone like Greg Duplantis, who's 5'6", 5'5", he had to be fast. He had to be really running fast coming into the takeoff because his angle was going to be so much lower uh, just because of his height. And that's okay. That's the beauty of this event. Everybody can get better by doing, uh, by doing something specific to find a way to get a little bit better. And I think that's where uh, some of the post collegians get lost is that they get sort of stuck working on maybe the same things that they've been working on, thinking that they're going to continue to get the same benefit, but they're missing something outside of that. And what that is, it's hard to find sometimes.
1: Um, You know, I transitioning a little bit into, you know, you, you, you know, obviously had an incredible career as, as a pole vaulter, as an athlete. Um, and then now you're in sports management and, and you manage or represent these, uh these athletes. So you have like kind of an insider on the athletic side of things, insider view. And then you also have this insider view on the, you know, management and like how, how elite track and field works. So this is like this is somewhat of a mystery to a lot of of athletes who are trying to get to that next level. And this was a mystery to me too. Trying to be specific with numbers and um, teams and things like that. What does somebody have to do to make a career of pole vaulting?
0: Quite simple. Jump high. (laughs) Uh, the the beauty, there is no magic. And what I tell people is, my job is not to make you or my my job's not to get you into meats that you don't deserve a spot in. Um, On occasion, that can happen. But my job is to number one, find meats that give you opportunity and allow you to prove yourself, and then the athlete who's able to step up and take advantage of that opportunity, uh, it opens the door for the next one to come up. Um, Secondly, um, my job is also not to make you perform well at a meet. That's your job. My job is to take care of all the logistics that give you the best opportunity to be focused on doing what you do. And a lot of people... Talk in this world about well, I need an agent that can get me into meets because I see this person jumping in that meet and that person jumping in this meet. You can't you can't look at uh, the results from a meet in Ostrava, Czech Republic, and see that 560, 18.4 got third place, and then you know be slapping your fist saying, "Man, I can jump eighteen four. I should have been in that meet." Because the guy that jumped 18-4 and got third place in that meet, he probably has a PR of 19-2. And he might be from a country where he's the best guy in this whole country. Mm -hmm. And he might have gotten a medal at the European Championships five years ago. Whatever the case is that that person was allowed to get into that meet, uh, there's, there's certain circumstances. And while we are at a really exciting time right now in the pole vault, especially on the men's side here in America with so many, what 12 guys jumped 19 feet indoors this year. uh, The Olympic trials was, was shaping up to be probably the greatest single pole vault competition in American history with as many guys that were jumping as well as they were. Um, And I hope that that momentum continues to next year, but I'm here to tell you as an agent, there is no way that meets in Europe have space for 12 Americans, even if they can all jump 19 feet, they don't have room for six Americans. So, so that becomes the hard part. And Earl, Earl used to say the most important meet every year, regardless of what you think it is, it's the national championships. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's where you prove yourself. It's where you make teams. If you don't make a team and I learned that lesson the hard way, uh, I only made, I, I only made two Olympic teams, but I went to the Olympic trials five times. So I've failed 60% of the time. <laughs> and a couple of those, two of those Olympic trials, I know hide it in. And, and I, I, I take, I take ownership of that. I take responsibility for that. And for sure, I think to some level, I had looked beyond that. I said, I'm, I got to get past the trials cause I gotta, I gotta do good at the games. And unfortunately, so, I, I came up short at the trials and didn't even get to go to the game. So, so that most important thing is the Olymp- is the national championships, whether that's the Olympic trials or a world championship year. Uh, and and the other side of that is um, when you have those opportunities, you got to step up and take advantage of it. And not to disrespect all the little small meets and the street events and the little small meets that happen around the, the country, they're great, but they don't count for much in the international scene, uh, right. like jump in there. The Europeans and the European community, which is primarily where our sport exists at the highest level, doesn't have a lot of respect for results done on American soil. Now, somebody like Sam Kendricks goes out and jumps 606 at our national championships in Des Moines. Everybody knows that's legit. And everybody is like, whoa, Sam's in great shape. But that's because Sam backs it up. He goes back over to Europe and he, he wins a diamond league in Paris. And then he wins a diamond league in Monaco. And then he wins the diamond league final in Zurich. And then he wins the world championship. Nobody's going to question that. And we yeah. have so many results that come out of American Meats um, that that people just, they don't see those results ever again from some of the athletes. And so uh, those are good opportunities, but you've got to be able to back those up at the next level. So at the beginning of that question, you
1: said simply jump high. Then you slowly started to morph that into, yeah. okay, jump high, but... Jump high in the right meets, and then you threw in medals and then you threw in you know teams things like that so this is this is I think this is really relevant to you know athletes that are trying to to make it and and when you say professional pole vaulter like I would have never called myself a professional pole vaulter like I made money pole vaulting a little bit of money but I would never say like I what I I'm a professional teacher you know like (laughs) that's that's how I make my living you know like uh you know I'm a PE teacher um you know and then I guess I would say I'm a professional coach right now because I coach and Mm -hmm. make money at that but like these people throwing around like I'm a professional pole vaulter. It's like, eh, I don't know about that. Sam, is he a professional pole vaulter? Mm-hmm. Yep, he's a professional pole vaulter. You he's know, <laughs> is Mondo you know, a professional pole vaulter? Yeah. But what, you, what, I, what I wanted to ask you was, if you have a guy who jumps, let's say that somebody just lights the world on fire and just jumped like a six meter bar at a street meet in America mm-hmm. and then goes jumps a bunch of 550s overseas, which is 18 feet. Um, And then you have another person who is a consistent 570 performer who performs Mm -hmm. 570 all the time, and then they make a world team, but don't place or anything. So would you rather have the consistent 570 guy or the guy who blew up a six-meter bar out of nowhere at a street meet? As
0: As a sports agent, who would you rather represent? Yeah, as an agent, for sure, the consistent 570 guy, Uh, because 570 internationally is still going to put you in position to get prize money. Uh, You're going to be able to make a living consistently jumping that kind of height, provided you get into meets and then you perform well. Um, There's nothing more frustrating for, not frustrating, but it's, it's the nature of the game as an agent you represent the athlete in the best way possible and when somebody goes out and say they jump at six meter bar in a street meet in in america and you say hey i got this guy he just jumped six meters and then you bring them in and then they jump by 50 um you know a foot and a half more than a foot and a half lower um it seems as if that athlete has been misrepresented and the thing that it's in, in terms of the, word, the definition of the word profession, I think we can all define what a professional is in so many different ways uh, that I don't have a problem with that. If you've made one penny in the sport, technically you could call yourself a professional. If you make a full-time living and you buy a house and you buy cars uh, with that money and you support your family with that money, you're also a professional. And, yeah, that's I guess, and and I think it's very difficult to define the beauty of the sport that we all live in is that, uh, we we have what I like instead of looking at the word professional, um, I like to look at opportunity, and the great thing about our sport is there is opportunity for nearly everybody. To, not nearly everybody, for everybody to do it. We don't have teams that you have to make in order to be on a roster. Uh, We don't do cuts in track and field. Um, Anybody can qualify for the U.S. championships. If I decided today, hey, I feel pretty good. I did a workout this morning, and I'm I'm feeling pretty spry again. I think I'm going to pursue the Olympic trials next year. There's nothing that stops me yeah. from being able to do that. And that's cool. And, so, wh- and what? that's what I love oh, about this sport. What would you, what do you, like, I, I I guess I
1: want, I know that there aren't any, like, specifics. But what do you got to do to get into a Diamond League? That was, like, my ultimate goal Is like, man, I just want to get into a Diamond League. And I don't care what one it is. I don't care if yeah. it's in America. I don't care if it's a pre-classic. I don't care if it's you know, or Paris, this huge, you know, diamond league, I don't care what one it is. That was like, man, maybe there's a chance that I could squeak into one of those one day, you know? And I, and I never got to that point. What, what, what would, uh, what would I have to do
0: to be able to do that? Yeah. So I'll tell you, I'll give you a good example of, of, of a case like that. Uh, Mark Hollis, Mark Hollis, his story is so cool. Because Mark Hollis uh, came through a, a small Division III school, um, Olivet Nazarene. Uh, he had jumped really well at the, at, at the, in Division III, multiple-time All-American, um, and, and he did really, really well. And I had never heard of this guy. And it happened to be in my life. Mark was one of my first athletes that I represented. But Mark, in 2008 – um, because he had done well at the NCAA level, um, he got a spot at the Drake relays and he came into the Drake relays jumping against me, Derek miles. Uh, I think Bernardo came over that year. Um, a couple other guys came over. It was the first year that we did the mall vault at, at Drake and Mark jumped oh, 571. Yeah. He jumped 18, eight and three quarters. That was cool. That and was it was like, who is this guy? Who right. is this guy? And at the time, it was like instantly he got recognized because he jumped high against the right guys mm-hmm. in the right meet that had credibility because of who he was jumping against and, the, and kind of what the meet represented. Um, right. Next thing you know, I hear Mark Hollis is confirmed for the Prefontaine meet. And he got to go to Prefontaine that year, and he got to jump in that Diamond League meet. Um, and Mark went on to get better. He, he went on to jump 19 feet, you know, and, and he went on to jump in, in a number of Diamond League meets over in Europe. Um, and that was such a great story. That was such a great success story, in my opinion, um, watching Mark, who... He could have stopped after college and said, "Man, I've had a great career in this sport." But you could just tell he wanted more. He wanted to be better. He wanted to achieve that next level. And so, taking advantage of those opportunities um, when when you when you see or when when they're given to you, that's what's really hard. And uh, you know, Sam Kendricks, his first year out of college, um, I wouldn't say he struggled. But he wasn't a mainstream guy. He he wasn't a guy that was a a must-have, an in-demand kind of guy. And 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 that's something that I tell athletes all the time as well. In any given meet, there are must-haves, and then without being disrespectful, there's filler. So there's the <laughs> must-haves of the world, which is Renault, Levellini, Piotr Lisek, yeah, Sam Kendricks, and Mondo Duplantis, and then it doesn't fill it out the field. You got to fill out the field. Yeah. All the rest are guys. that just, they fill out the field and they're all talented. I've been there. I've been there. But, <laughs> but you got to remember for any given field of athletes, whether it's a street vault in somewhere in Kansas or a diamond league in Paris, France, um, there's far more athletes that are technically qualified than there are spots available. Right. And so it it does come down to certain things. A a good agent does make a difference getting you into a meet. Um, But an athlete can get into a meet just by the fact that they they step up and they and they do a good job and they take advantage of an opportunity when it rises medals
1: medals and and world teams and olympic teams and and things like that obviously play a big hand and josh sorry this is like my one chance i get to pick that's fine i'm I'm sitting back and i've been (laughs) i've been sitting here for however many years i've been done pole vaulting like 10 years since college and wondering these things. So, this is an amazing opportunity for me. So, you said that about getting into the Diamond League. Yeah, you can sneak into the Diamond League, you know, you you do something like like Mark did, which was outstanding and he went on to have a great a great career and have some success in Europe and and things like that. Um, but what about a shoe contract? That's different. Mm. That's a whole that's a different beast, isn't it?
0: Yeah, totally different level because remember the shoe companies are motivated by medals. So the number one question that I get from any of the shoe company reps, uh, or, or the number one thing we talk about is can this, can this athlete earn a medal on the international scene? And guess what? You can't earn a medal if you're not on the team. Right. So the first thing is make the team. What becomes the most important meet of the year? National championships. So that's you that's go. your proving yeah. ground. Um, I've I I now work with Paul Doyle, uh, Doyle Management Group. We're one of the biggest uh, yeah, and I sure. would say most successful management companies in track and field. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously my primary responsibilities are in, involved the pole vaulters, um, but. As a company, we we will do whatever uh, to chip in and fill in when we're servicing athletes on the road while while we're traveling. Um, At this point, Paul Doyle does the majority of our of negotiation and interaction with the shoe companies. And whether you're a pole vaulter or a sprinter or a distance runner or a jumper of some kind, a thrower, you they all want to know. the the shoe companies are looking for metal production. That's their primary motivation. That's their primary drive. They want their brand on the podium. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times as athletes, we internalize our value in the world of sports based on our face and our nice smile and how cool we look when we're jumping over the bar. And the shoe companies want to see their brand on the podium and they don't care what face is wearing the uniform. They don't care what nationality in some cases is wearing that uniform, but they want to see that swoosh or they want to see those stripes or they want to see, you know, that logo that right. is the representation of their brand.
1: And in, and, the, pole vault, in the pole vault, it's mainly just, just Nike. Like there, there really isn't, like, they're not gonna allocate however many contracts to, Pole vaulting, they're gonna they're gonna allocate way more contracts to the 100 or the mile or the 1500, you know, or or something like that. They're not there. There's basically like is even going back to when you guys were like you and Derek and Jeremy, uh, you know, were were jumping. It was always kind of like, all right, there's three dudes, three dudes with shoe contracts, you mm-hmm. know, like in America. I mean. You know, like, it's basically kind of just always been like, okay, there's going to be three people that have shoe contracts, and uh, they're all going to be Nike. And uh, that's basically
0: it, you know, and, and yeah, you you know, when I first came up, there was everybody was involved. Adidas had people in the sport and, and Reebok had a big presence. Uh, You know, Pat Manson and Dean Starkey had Reebok contracts. Uh, Scott, Scott Huffman had a Mizuno contract, but also represented Foot Locker. Mm-hmm. Um, God, Mizuno sure. doesn't have as much presence in the sport, in the pole vault as they used to. Um, and, and you're right. Nike has been really, a, a, an incredible supporter. Uh, in recent years, Puma has come up and, and they've started to add more athletes to their roster. Um, we represent Pavel Wojciechowski, mm-hmm. uh, and he signed with Puma this year. Cool, And so he was able, you know, and so now Puma, uh, Pavel Wojciechowski, Renault's little brother, um, Valentin Levolani, jump for Puma. Um, and, and there's a couple girls. Yaroslav Silva jumps for Puma. Um, Chloe Cunliffe jumps for Puma. So, and she's also with us. We represent her as well. And so we, we have a number of athletes that are, that are spread out now with a couple of different companies. But you're right. There are, there are certain events that are, I would say, a little bit more high profile. And it's based on the exposure that they get. Yeah. Um, if you're a if you're a, a miler, you're going to be on television in all those European track meets for several minutes. If you're a pole vaulter, you may get one or two jumps, and that's if you win, or that's if you beat one of the big the big guns. Um, so it's it's a much riskier proposal to get for, for exposure for those shoe companies
1: unless unless you're like a mondo who you know lives in the states but represents sweden like because people don't understand it's like well why'd mondo go do that like he is going he already is you know michael jordan over there like he he could he could be they're they're going to be way if, if let's say Puma, for example, they they're going to be way more willing to give somebody in a smaller country who's like a really, a really good pole vaulter, you know, a contract than they would be willing to give the same person that jumps the same height in America.
0: Right. Uh, there There is something to the fact that that in some in certain countries, being the best athlete would Ensure you a better chance of being in the top position in the spotlight, um, kind of. But but Firmando, regardless of what country he would represent, I I think all the shoe companies well, recognize for
1: sure, yeah, is his talent. I mean, it, yeah, it, his that, talent. That, I guess I guess that's a bad example. I'm I guess I'm thinking of more like, you know, if you like, whenever I was coming up, I would be like, why would that guy get a contract? Like, I'd look at like his, you know statistics or whatever and you know who whatever country they were from and i'd be like why does he have a contract and then i'd be like oh because we have you know 300 million people (laughs) in the u.s and you know i'm competing against you know 10 people who have jumped 19 feet and he's only competing against you know a few people in that country that have have
0: you know, jumped high. So yeah. I guess, yeah, you know, know, that's exactly, that's exactly true. And, and part of it is, is that, you know, these days, the standards have gone up a lot, you know, the Olympic standards now 580, just to go to the Olympics. Whereas even back in 2008, my last year, I think the Olympic standard that year was 555, 18.2, mm. uh, which meant everybody in the field had jumped that high but that was certainly a lot more attainable than this five eighty standard Now they are going to backfill with some with world rankings, and so there'll be some athletes who do get into the Olympics that don't have that, but that also plays into that opportunity and we'll have We'll have several nineteen foot guys sitting at home watching next right. year when the Olympics is going on that are for all arguable purposes better than a number of the athletes who are in the meet. Um, But that's not what the Olympics is all about. You know, the Olympics is all about a, a different whole concept of, of bringing people together from diverse backgrounds and all that kind of stuff. But on the, on the shoe company side, it's business decisions and athletes have to remember that, that these, you know, I, I told an athlete one time, if you were a shoe company rep, would you give you a contract? And the athlete kind of looked at me and said, you know what? Probably not. <laughs> I remember whenever I got out of college
1: and I was like, dude, I jumped 550. To be fair to myself, though, 550 when I got out of college, which was like kind of like a, a low, sad period of... of American volleyball. Yeah, we went through a little bit of a lull. <laughs> yeah. yeah lucky for me because that enabled me to be able to uh you know do some cool stuff without having to jump 580 you know I I I jumped 550 but I got some really cool opportunities because we were in a little bit of a lull but I remember coming out of college and just uh calling up actually I think I sent uh Doyle management an email (laughs) Mm. (laughs) and I was like hey just wanted to know what I gotta do to you know go into the diamond leagues and stuff and yeah. uh and then I, I i would send emails to like shoe companies and this and that and looking back on it i'm like dude you didn't have any business doing that but um it's it is it is kind of just a crazy thing because there's a lot of you know people out there like myself whenever i was coming out that are like i deserve a shoe contract and i i deserve this and and i should be you know doing this but there's a lot more that goes into it so basically what you're saying is jump high jump high at the right times against the right people and you need to be ready whenever you do get that shot you need to be ready to perform and you need to you need to perform and i think one big takeaway from that was at the national championship every single year you have to be ready to perform at your best and um and that's hard it's really, really hard to perform on those days, um, especially whenever I was getting into it. I mean, I went and I, you know, saw people like you jumping, and I saw, you know, Derek Miles, who was another huge hero of mine. I actually, this is really funny. We were at the factory vault, the Guild Factory Vault, mm-hmm. a long time ago, and I got one of those opportunities after college. They were like, "Hey, come on over here and and jump. You know, we've got Derek jumping. We've got." you know these other people jump in and and I remember walk, I was warming up and Derek obviously probably doesn't remember this but he's he's walking in and I'm like oh gosh there's Derek Miles he's getting, he's in all his nike stuff i think it was like purple and yellow was the colors that <laughs> <the> time, <laughs> and i was like dude he's got the fresh gear on and and i'm like i walk over and i'm like hey what's going on he's like hey how you doing <laughs> and i said just trying not to know height and, and i was like why did i just say that why did I just say? full confidence like to, my, to my hero hey yeah just uh trying not to know height today yeah that's great you know good job jake you really nailed that introduction gosh dang man
3: well josh speaking, you got it yeah go ahead speaking of nike gear um i can't keep Uh, I I can't get the the reptile stuff out of my head. You know, you got all this, all this, the blue and lime green. Um, That was half the pictures that we had on the wall was, was Hartwig up in the, in the big plant position with this, this cool pattern um, to it. And I want to segue into like kind of, kind of a loaded question, like the the hobbies, the things you like to do outside of both when you were pole vaulting um, and now, but also, you know, the balance of pole vaulting and hobbies, like how, how about the whole reptile thing and where did that come into play? How'd that start?
0: Tell us about that. Yeah. Once again, uh, I have no idea. It it just kind of weird (laughs) luck. Uh, I found a snake one day in my yard and I said, this is really cool. And what I find a lot with reptiles in general is that almost everybody's curious about them. It's just most people are kind of scared of them or creeped out by them and I never was scared or creeped out. I think they're really cool. Um, you know, I think a pet dinosaur would be perfect, you know, kind of the next level of Tiger King coming out, you know, yeah, right. Uh, a whole park of <laughs> dinosaurs like Jurassic Park. And, and the one thing that I think I'm drawn to more than anything, which is what keeps me in the sports world is I love, I'm drawn to passionate people. And whether that's, people that have a strong passion for whatever they do. Um, you know, whether it's driven by business, I like reading these success stories and, and achieve stories of achievement, mountaineering stories, people that the first people that I love the story about, you know, Sir Edmund Hillary climbing Mount Everest, you know, uh, when you weren't supposed to be able to climb that mountain. And it's certainly in a different time than it is today. And And, 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 you know, the guy, the different people, Roger Bannister running the four minute mile, uh, those stories are really inspiring to all of us. And I'm really drawn to people that are passionate about different things. And I don't know what brings that out in certain people. Um, for me, the reptiles was such a contrast to the sports world. And yet I just find them fascinating. I find them very interesting Um, I always have, and, uh, like I said, never had the fear. And so I find myself caught up in these conversations about it. And yet I get it. I get that you don't want a snake living in your house. Um, I just happen to think it's pretty cool that, uh, you know, and, and I meet a lot of people in the reptile world, Mm -hmm. um, that are just as drawn to the, the, the nature and whether it's the biology or the science or, uh, or just the aesthetics of of a uh, of a pet reptile. To me, it's no different than any other pet. Um, although interactively, it's totally different. I've got two dogs, and and uh, they go you better. With me watch those everywhere. dogs,
1: man! Get in one of them pythons mouth or something. That would be bad. Well,
0: <laughs> they're actually great. <laughs> they're actually hundred and twenty pound Great Danes, so, oh, <laughs> so okay. it might be a it might be a
3: decent fight. Well, yeah, they're, in,
0: they're they're in good shape right now. So
3: Luke likes the reptiles. He's always been a big, I think he may have mentioned it to you, Jeff, but he, he's, he's got like all sorts of lizards and lizard cages and all sorts of stuff. He, he's always really, really enjoyed it. And that's part of the reason he's always really
1: enjoyed watching you vault. He's always like, yeah, man, that's the, uh, that's the 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 reptile guy. (laughs) How many, how many many are we talking about here, Jeff? Like how many reptiles or snakes or like different types of Things that you got going on at your place?
0: Oh gosh, I don't. I actually don't know. I don't have a count, but I know where everything is. I mean, I know what everything I have is, um, and and it's. Uh, I've downsized quite a bit in recent years, um, okay. uh, because of my travel schedule and being on the road with the the great athletes that I have the opportunity to be with. Um, I've sort of scaled back a little bit in in the reptile stuff, but I still I still breed and. I've got, uh, I had some baby boas born a couple days ago, and, and I've got some some ball pythons about to hatch in a couple weeks, and... and uh, I mean, and I guess still, that's, that's pretty I, cool, yeah. I, yeah. I don't
1: like snakes. I do yeah, not Jake, like them at Jake all. Jake doesn't I like snakes. I, yeah, I have no issues but, with them. So, I have this, like, weird thing where I force myself to do things that I, like, get really yeah. scared about, like, so, like, this is embarrassing, but... If I'm like shutting off all the lights uh, in, the, in like at nighttime and like, I'm, I'm, I hope I'm not the only one that's done this, but uh-huh. I'll like start walking up the stairs and get scared. I'm 32, 31, 32 years old. I, I still get scared, but like, I slow myself down and I'm like, okay, I'm in this like scary position right now now just like live in it and just walk up the stairs slow don't run up the stairs you know yeah it's a similar thing with snakes so my brother-in-law has a snake and whenever i go over there i will force myself to hold it even though it makes my anxiety so bad i get so anxious and it freaks me out so bad but i'm like you know what this is something i have to be able to do so I just sit there and I just live in the fear for a little bit.
3: Anyway, yeah. Jake's, um,
1: Jake's the guy, whenever we're camping,
3: I feel don't you always have this kind of quirk where you, you make sure that tent is all the way zip closed because we, yeah. we've camped in, I mean, rattlesnake territory
1: multiple times. And it's like, everybody's afraid of waking up in their sleeping bag with a rattlesnake at the bottom. Right. Yeah,
0: I, I think I wouldn't want that.
3: <laughs> Jeff, have so you ever linked up oh, with the ahead. with the Carmichaels um, from Illinois? The Carolina Carmichael, they, you know that they have a big, I mean, crazy reptile sanctuary. Yeah, and yeah, all yeah. That stuff.
0: Yeah, no, I've actually done some stuff with Rob, uh, Carolina's dad, and yep. uh, we meet every year. the The biggest, one of the biggest reptile shows in the in the world is in Tinley Park. It's in Chicago. Yep and so he always brings down a a a display and and so I meet with him and and uh we do talk about pole vault, but we also get to yeah. get to hang out and talk about reptiles and he's got all kinds of stuff because oh. he's more of a of, of an attraction more of a zoo for sure and uh, i'm just a little hobby hobby breeder but uh what's but the
1: closest he, call you've ever had with one of these reptiles
0: well you know like what would you it would depend on what you would describe as close call. Um, where your
3: heart rate I've, jumped up and you thought this this is a
1: situation. This is gonna be like pretty bad. One of them starts squeezing you maybe a little too hard.
0: Yeah, honestly, never. I have never wow, had a bad awesome. uh, a bad experience or a bad call that I was really afraid that I was in danger. I, I, I one time had a I used to keep some of the really, really big pythons and uh, one day I had crawled into one's cage. I was cleaning the cage and, (laughs) and, uh, and as I was backing out of the cage, uh, the snake decided it was hungry and it bit me. And, uh, you know, that's that's a close, that's a pretty close call. I would say, right? Yeah. I mean, it's part of the, it's part of the hobby. Um, if you're, I always tell, you know, I've had people that are interested to buy snakes and they say, do you have one that doesn't bite? And I say, well, if you want one that doesn't bite, don't buy a snake Buy buying something else. Um, sure you know, but, but all the snakes I keep are harmless, um, and non-venomous and, uh, and, and I, I feel like it's too much risk. actually, years and years ago, there was a pole vaulter that kept a pet rattlesnake. And I remember talking to him one time about, eh, maybe I'd kind of like to get something venomous sometime. And he said, dude, as long as you're pole vaulting, don't do it. He said, it's, it's kind of the risk reward type thing for any activity. And, you know, like Renault level has been criticized for riding motorcycles, but he loves riding motorcycles. He's passionate about motorcycles. He's also very good at riding motorcycles. Mm-hmm. Um, but we all know there's an element of danger in everything we do. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and why take an unnecessary risk? And for sure. so for me, that was something that I always sort of avoided because I can wrangle these big pythons and move them around and and feel pretty comfortable and pretty secure that nothing that's going to compromise my career is going to happen while I'm dealing with them. Uh, and yet my attraction to them was purely out of the fact that it's a total escape. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, these animals are 100% dependent on my care to ensure that they have a, a a healthy and and enjoyable, if that's what you say, life. And they don't care whether I win a track meet. They don't care that I'm a pole vaulter. Um, and that's there's there's a quality to that for me that's really cool, um, and that I can get away from the pressure or the the expectations that I have on myself as as a pole vaulter, or even the the, the 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 responsibility and the image and and you know it's funny I I was I actually was down in Mississippi last week with Sam, and he did the challenge with Renault and Mondo, uh, mm-hmm. the the five meter bar challenge. Hey, and, really, really uh, quick,
1: Josh, carry on with this. I got to use the restroom real quick. Yeah, I'll be right back. Go for it.
0: And they, uh, I was down there with with Sam, and and Sam says, you know what's really cool? He goes, well, you know why I love Oxford, Mississippi. He goes, because I can walk around anywhere in Oxford, Mississippi, and I'm just another guy on the street. So and that's terrific. the way I felt when I lived in Jonesboro, Arkansas. I could go into the mall, I could go to the store, I could go buy groceries, I could do whatever I wanted to do. And I I would say even most people had no idea who I was. But if I, I'm traveling with Sam and we're walking down the street in Zurich, Switzerland, yep. there's a ninety-five percent chance somebody's going to stop us. and want to take a picture, or get an autograph, or something, and that's a really cool experience in this sport, that uh, you can kind of have the best of both worlds, you can be famous, and you can be on that stage, and yet you can still step away from it, and I think we all have ways to step away, um, and do something that we enjoy, And, and that's one of the positive things of social media, is that yep. we get to see what people like outside of what they what we primarily know them for? You know, I saw Katarina Stefanidi hoeing up a garden the other day, yeah, I and saw that. Uh, I thought, oh, that's cool. And I see things that they do um, that are outside of just the day to day grind of being a professional athlete.
3: For sure, Daniel Ryland, um, I know he does a lot of that that mm-hmm. garden sanctuary type. Stuff that you really I think that's the thing that's funny about the the winder boys i guess our uh our escapes always seem to be really intense physical things that the yeah. risk was always kind of high, man, like it's mm-hmm. hiking to the top of a mountain um you know mid-summer right before fall training or or we we were big into skateboarding or even even um we were in a band and I would play guitar, but we would you know, we would be driving around in a van and playing these shows until late. Really late. Night, yeah. And it's like, man, I wish I, I, I enjoyed or, or hopped into a hobby that was a bit more like, um, you know, dealing with pets and reptiles. Although, if I got to admit, Jeff, if, if you were wrestling a python at what, six foot 190 in your prime, according to Wikipedia, 6'3". Three. Six six three, three, sorry, sorry, six yeah. three. Um, I'd choose you. I would choose uh, you as the uh,
1: as being victorious, sir. You might <laughs> yeah. find him halfway down that python's throat.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, they, you know the they're uh, they're not quite as out of control as you would think they are. Um, yeah, right. I I used to do a lot of shows for kids. Uh, we'd go to schools and stuff because I had a lot more time, and and I would take big pythons, and I would just kind of let them crawl loose in the classroom and let the kids touch them and play with them, and they were they were pretty predictable, but I, I can tell you out in the wild, uh, you know, mm-hmm. a 20 foot long snake out in the wild, that would be a handful. That'd be a handful. Have for you any ever got into in gators?
3: Like, cause I, man, what i see of, um, what's the guy, Sean Young, he lives in Florida yeah. and he'll post up pictures of gators every once in a while. I'm just like, man, that is one reptile that I just cannot vibe with man.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Problem? I think about like the big, uh, uh, like the big Nile crocodiles from Africa or the saltwater crocodiles. I mean, those are the big ones, you know, yeah. you're yeah. talking about a yeah. 2000 pound Dinosaur. animal. Um, and those would be something that like in the wild one-on-one, I mean, we wouldn't have a chance. Yeah. They, you see they, you later. You're getting, we you're would getting have. Mean. I mean, those things take down buffaloes and, you know, they pull down animals that are substantially bigger than us. And those animals have no chance and they're, you know, their na- the nature of what they do is survival. So
2: right. um,
0: it, it, it's different, definitely a different perspective in a different world. Um, but For sure. I still love it. You know, it's like anything with passionate people. It's borderline insanity. And I think that's what I love. It's really <laughs> crazy when you think about the way an athlete will push himself. And I remember I was in an interview one time with Toby Stevenson. And Toby, this reporter said to Toby, you know, you're an Olympic medalist and you're, you're in the shape of your life and you just, you've got to just be on top of the world. What does it feel to be like that? And Toby said, what are you talking about? He goes, what I do is not health and fitness. It's not somebody that goes out and does aerobics three times <laughs> right. a week. He goes, it's borderline insanity. He goes, yeah. I hurt every day. He said, it's, it's really crazy, but I love it. I just can't, it's, it's a necessary evil for what I'm trying to accomplish. And I just can't get enough of it. percent. Awesome.
1: Well, we're getting close to the end here. This is one more question. Random, random question. Why do people call you Stu?
0: <laughs> my, simple. My middle name, Stuart. Hey, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. My, my, my best friend for pretty much my whole life. Um, Oh, gosh, we've been best friends since seventh grade, I guess. And and uh, and his mom one time said, "What's your middle name?" And at the time, I said Stuart. She goes, "Oh, Stewie,"
2: <laughs> and go. I
0: became I became Stewie. And uh, and then when I moved to Jonesboro, uh, one of my training partners and a a big inspiration, a, a couple time All American at Arkansas State, a guy named Craig Hagens probably kind of coined the name and started calling me Stu, and for years people called me Stu. and not so many there's still a few people that do that but uh, uh mostly i'm jeff nowadays so gotcha, right on.
1: gotcha. Well, well thank you oh go ahead josh i was just gonna say
3: um if there was we we kind of were trying to come up with uh you know the endings of these a little bit more uh, s- smoothing the outro out and i like to get a statement from From the guests. And I just looked at some of our metrics for our YouTube channel, which is, you know, slowly growing, but it does say 20 to 34 year olds are our primary listeners. So we've got athletes and coaches, which is right in that post collegiate, you know, athlete coach, um, kind of vibe what would you what would you say to the listeners you know males females 20 to 34 years old who are obviously interested in in likely the sport of pole vault um what do you tell them um to keep to keep grinding to keep learning to the 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 little nuggets that you've learned what's your kind of closing statement
0: uh i think i would have to say be patient and persevere um the 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 climb to the top is filled with much more failure From a personal perspective than it is with success. But I always have said, while success is the greatest reward for the work we do, failure is probably the greatest motivator. That's the thing that brings us back every day and says, you know what, I'm going to get better today than I was yesterday. I'm going to do this better than I could. Uh, I'm not going to fail the next time I do this. And so that's the biggest thing. Be patient and persevere. Mm.
1: that's awesome well jeff you are an inspiration like i said earlier in the beginning um if it makes you feel better you are my all-time favorite pole vaulter (laughs) (laughs) i had to do it when dad rolled out
3: that jeff hartwig poster (laughs) tagged that into the wall and then hung up the spikes that had six meters on it i was like this has to be my favorite vault
1: i actually printed your uh picture that i had on my wall uh off of your website (laughs) Back in the day, I printed it on a printer. Um, But anyway, so uh, you're an inspiration. You're an incredible person, so well-spoken. And I just really appreciate you agreeing to go on this because this uh, this has been a conversation that I personally have wanted to have for a very, very long time. And I just appreciate the opportunity that you have offered us to be able to
0: have it. Well it's a great pleasure for me to be on the on the podcast and I wish you guys the best of luck with uh, all the future episodes.
1: Thank you very much. This is the one more jump podcast signing off.